it'll be right af after the sermon in uh, my <coughs> study on the second stor story of the middle building. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. From our epistle today, quote, For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles who do not know God. The word fornication appears from time to time in our epistles. It translates the Greek word porneia, from which we get our word pornography, and refers in general to sex outside of marriage. The pagan world was characterized by a lack of sexual restraint. Sex with temple prostitutes was a standard part of pagan worship. St. Paul was writing to Christian converts who were tempted to bring these cultural attitudes into their new practice of the Christian faith. St. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that coming to Christ means leaving behind that kind of behavior. The sexual revolution of the 1960s brought these ancient pagan attitudes towards sex back into our culture. And a casual attitude towards sex has become a standard part of our own cultural idolatry being closely aligned with the worship of pleasure, convenience, and self, among other modern contemporary gods. And modern Christians are also tempted to bring this cultural attitude towards sex into the practice of faith. And St. Paul's teaching would be exactly the same. He would tell us, you can't do that. Faith in Christ requires new holy behavior that befits our new identity as God's people. Our approach as the church towards sex, however, must move beyond merely saying no. We must explain why. The sexual revolution itself helps us provide an answer. It has produced vast personal, family, and cultural carnage. Virtually every grave social ill that exists in our culture is rooted in family breakdown, which is rooted in the idea that we can have sex without having commitment. God wants more for us than that. Sex was designed by God to be an expression of relational intimacy and commitment that reflects God's own being, a being in which three people, three persons, are eternally one. Where there isn't absolute commitment, sex cannot be what God intends it to be, no matter how much one professes love for another. Apart from mutual commitment to love until death, sex actually divides people. 
It breeds a lack of trust and a resentment because the physical act is not a representation, a sacramental representation of the inner emotional and spiritual reality. Adultery and fornication are, in fact, attempts to take a shortcut to intimacy, just like the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, wilderness was a temptation to take a shortcut to Easter without going through the cross. The fact is that relationships are very hard, and they take a lot of work. But we can only have intimacy with commitment and the willingness to work very hard. We abstain from false intimacy, from fornication and adultery, in order to enjoy genuine intimacy. And the foundation for genuine intimacy is our relationship with God in Christ through the Spirit. It is here that we learn what it means to be loved in spite of ourselves. It is here that we experience grace. And this personal experience of love and grace becomes the reference point for all of our loves for other people. And only in that context can our love for others rise to that love of God, that agape. God does not abandon his commitment to his church and look for a prettier girl just because we are hard to love. His love, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, never fails. Thus, our love for each other in Christ and our love for that particular other we call spouse requires a similar commitment. And it re requires that we abstain from sexual relationships with every other who is not spouse because there's always someone else's potential future spouse. We can see here why sex is necessarily a communal concern and why boundaries are necessary and actually protect and promote genuine communal intimacy. Every yes we give to God, to genuine intimacy, genuine relationships with others requires a no to every offer of false intimacy. And every no we give to false intimacy is part of our yes to God and the good of the body of Christ. The marriage relationship is but one kind of intimate relationship that exists within the body of Christ. The biblical teaching about sex and marriage assumes that marriages are part of a larger social structure, the body of Christ, to which the partners have an obligation. Healthy sexuality in the body of Christ requires space and boundaries for healthy relationships for single people and healthy relationships for each partner in a marriage to relate to others outside of their marriage in appropriate ways. As we learn to be close to people in healthy and appropriate ways, 
we are less likely to pursue intimacy in inappropriate ways. Intimacy is not about sex. There are other ways to be close to people, and sex can be truly intimate in only one place. The church has often assumed the role of angry moralist in the cultural debates about sex, as though we're always on the lookout for someone who is enjoying their sexuality in order to be able to say, stop it. Our current cultural context calls for a change in posture. Rather than railing about what all the people are doing out there in the culture, the church is called to be a truly alternative community, the holy people of God, which can illustrate, give an example to the culture of what genuine love and intimacy looks like in God's kingdom. As the community of genuine intimacy rooted in agape love, we invite those who have been wounded and broken by the false intimacy of our culture to come to Christ and his church and be healed. This means the church must focus on its own behavior first. As 1 Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. We have to shed any hint of the notion that we can compromise with the cultural standards for sex. It isn't working in the culture, and it isn't working in the compromised lives of Christians who try to practice the cultural standard. There is no lack of clarity in either the Bible or the tradition. God's will is faithfulness within marriage and abstinence outside of marriage. If you are a Christian and that's not what you're doing, you need to repent and change your behavior in order to receive God's highest and best for your life. Most people born in the last generation have been wounded in some way by our culture's casual attitudes towards sex. This fact alone bears witness to why sex is a communal concern. Sex is never a private act between two consenting adults. Sex is always a communal act and it always impacts other people. And this is why we must change our posture from moralist to healer. We all have wounds that stem from the false intimacy of our time and we all need to be made whole by Christ. The image of the church in the Bible begins in the Old Testament with unfaithful Israel. At the end of the Old Testament, God calls his people a whore because of their unfaithfulness. However, by the end of the New Testament, God's people are the spotless and glorious bride of Christ. And they are spotless and glorious not because of their own innate virtue, but because, as Revelation says, quote, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
We come to Christ as the Gentile woman in today's gospel as unclean people with repentance and faith. Jesus forgives us and cleanses us and makes us whole. But when we come for this forgiveness and cleansing, we must leave behind our former unfaithful ways. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.